Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. In a split second, everything can change. Your tiny, everyday decisions, even as simple as your coffee order, can potentially have a ripple effect that expands over time. And the average adult makes around 35,000 remotely conscious decisions every day. That's a lot of moments that could potentially alter the course of your life. So how do you navigate a world driven by such unpredictable forces? Morgan Hazel has spent some time contemplating this very question. Morgan's a former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and the author of one of my all-time favorite books, The Psychology of Money. And today he's here to talk about his newest must-read, Same As Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes, which captures how to optimize your happiness and decision-making in a world that's so fragile to chance. So Hanging by a Thread is the title of the first chapter, and you begin that chapter with a very powerful personal story. So can can we start there and share that story with our audience? Sure. So I, I grew up as a competitive ski racer in Lake Tahoe. That was my entire childhood. My entire teenage years was skiing six days a week, 10 months a year, all over the world. And there were about a dozen of us. We were on the Squaw Valley ski team at Squaw Valley in, in, in Lake Tahoe. And, you know, it was amazing. Like that was such a cool childhood, such a different childhood. There's all these little quirky things that came out of it. Like I really don't have much of a high school education because most of us did an independent study program that let us ski six days a week. And we did so little, virtually no work before they handed us a piece of paper that said diploma on it. And so we, we like, oh, there's all these, it was a really interesting and unique childhood, a great childhood, great teenage years. But one of the very powerful moments and events that came out of that was this experience I had when I was 17 years old. And it was February of 2001. And two of my inseparable best friends who I'd grown up with, we were skiing together at Squaw that day. Something very important had happened to the mountain that week, which was it had been blasted by this giant blizzard that dumped several feet of very heavy, wet snow on the mountain. And we didn't think that much of it. We didn't really think about much of anything when we were 17 years old. We were just some kids having fun, but very heavy, wet snow is very prone to avalanche. It's very prone to slide because it gets pulled down the mountain by the weight of it. And so on this day in February of 2001, the three of us were skiing and we would ski in the out of bounds area on the backside of Squaw Valley, which you have to duck under the ropes that say, do not cross. You're not supposed to do it. You're not allowed to do it. We knew it was wrong, but we did this all the time because that's where the good skiing is. It's untracked and you have the mountain to yourself. And when we would do it, we would ski down. There's no chairlift at the bottom. It would spit us out on this backcountry road and we would hitchhike back. And we had done this several times. It was kind of a pain because you had to hitchhike back, but we had, we, this is, that was our life. We, we kind of did little funny things like this. And so the three of us skied it that morning. And when we were skiing down, I very vividly remember we triggered a small avalanche and it was like, it came like, came up to our knees. It wasn't that, it wasn't that big of a deal, but it was very memorable because uh, I, I'm guessing most people listening to this have not been in an avalanche, but it's a, it's a really weird feeling because rather than pushing on the ground with your skis to gain traction, all of a sudden the ground is pushing you. So you go from what feels like you're skiing to you're on a roller coaster. You have no control. It's just pushing you around in any direction. But that avalanche ended pretty quickly and we all kind of like high-fived about how cool it was. And we got down to the bottom and we hitchhiked back. We get back down to our locker room at the base of the mountain after we hitchhiked. And my two friends, Brendan and Brian said, hey, let's do it again. That was great. Let's go do that run again. For whatever reason, I, I didn't want to do it. Uh, it was probably the hitchhiking that like bothered me, that felt reckless to me that we were hitch- with 17-year-olds hitchhiking all the time. And so I said, hey, rather than hitchhiking back, why don't you two go do that run again? And instead of hitchhiking, I'll pick you up in, in my truck. I'll drive around the mountain and pick you up so you don't have to hitchhike. We said, great. We went our separate ways. They went off skiing. I went to take my boots off and get in my truck to pick them up. 20 minutes later, I arrive at like the designated pickup zone where we were supposed to pick them up and they weren't there. And I really didn't think anything of it. Uh, It didn't really occur to me. You know, prior to the cell phone era, we didn't have cell phones back then. People were very comfortable being apart and not knowing where you were. It was just part of life. So I didn't really think anything of it. And the day went on. I went back to the locker room. Nobody had seen them. And I still don't remember getting that worried though. 
Later that day, around 4 or 5 p.m., Brian, one of the guys, one of, his mom called me at home and she said, Morgan, Brian never showed up to work today. Do you know where he is? And I told her the truth. I remember saying, they skied the backside of Squaw. I was going to pick them up, but they never showed up. And I don't think anyone's seen them since. And Brian's mom, who was an expert skier in that moment, I'm, I, so, I can still hear her words in, in, in my head. She said, oh my God, and hung up the phone. And I think in that moment, she kind of pieced together what may have happened. I did as well. As the day went on, we finally got the police involved, missing persons report. The police did not take it seriously at all. They thought with 100% confidence that they were out drunk at a party or they ran off with a girl for the night. And they said, that's always what happens here. But finally, we convinced them to get search and rescue involved. And so I think it was around midnight that night in the middle of a blizzard that search and rescue went up on the hill. And remember, they had these giant portable floodlights that they would like tow on the back of a snowmobile. And they had a team of search dogs with them. And they went searching for Brendan and Brian at midnight on the backside of, of the mountain where we were skiing. The next morning, the search dogs had, uh, by about 9 a.m., I think it was, the search dogs had kind of honed in on a spot on the field. And the rescuers with probe poles, these giant like 12-foot probe poles, found Brendan and Brian buried in an avalanche, six feet under the snow, dead, of course. And so that, of course, I, I, always want to, I always need to pause when I say this and say, everybody listening to this right now has lost somebody close to them. So I don't want to pretend like my story is, is unique in that sense, but maybe the circumstances of it were unique. And to me, what I uh, really dwelled on afterwards, after, you know, during the, the grieving process was Brendan and Brian and I had probably skied literally thousands of runs together. How many times did I say, hey, you guys do another run? I'm not going to. Almost never. It almost never happened. But if I had gone with them that day, 100% chance I would be dead too. The, the avalanche that, that killed them was enormous. It, I remember one of the search and rescue people saying it looked like half the mountain had been just torn away. The avalanche was so extreme. And so it kind of dawned on me of this like, well, first of all, why did I not go with them? The answer is I have no idea. I wasn't weighing risk or reward. It was not some like grand analysis. I wasn't thinking about the consequences. I may have been tired. Maybe I didn't eat breakfast that morning. Like whatever it was, I didn't go with them. But it became the single most important decision I ever made in my life. Because if I had gone with them, I wouldn't have made it. And so that to me was an example of something that applies to everybody and every culture and every country, which is that the world hangs by a thread. The tiniest little know nothing decision in your life or in history can utterly alter the consequences of your life or the country's life or the economy's life. I mean, I give an example in the book of this amazing interview with the, the historian, David McCullough, who is kind of, was, he, he recently passed away. He was one of the world's foremost authorities on the Revolutionary War. And he talks about, he tells this amazing scene about the Battle of Long Island during the Revolutionary War, where George Washington and his troops were cornered by the British. And all the British had to do was sail up the East River and corner George Washington, and it would have all been over. But they couldn't. The British could not sail up the East River that night because the wind was blowing in the wrong direction. So they couldn't make it up the river. And David McCullough was asked, he said, if the wind was blowing in the other direction, would there be a United States of America today? And he said, no. So you think about even something as big as like literally the birth of the United States of America relied on the direction of the winds during one night in the 1700s. So there are so many things where history just hangs by a thread. A tiny little decision changes everything. And once you kind of embrace that reality, I think the humility that you make in your forecast increases dramatically, but also the creativity that you might need to have, for lack of a better word, about what the future might hold for us extends wildly. Like we have no clue what your personal life or what the country or the world is going to be like in 10, 20, or 30 years, just because no nothing events have such an ability to spiral into something either incredibly good or incredibly tragic. So on that note, I'm curious, how, how has this informed your worldview more specifically in, in how you live your day-to-day? -day? As you say, there are world events that we have no ability to impact that could be incredibly tragic or on the other hand, incredibly beautiful. There are things we can't control and then there are things we can control. And that's a balancing act, which could be anxiety inducing for some people. On the other hand, it could also, there's agency there. It's just a lot to, 
It's a lot to think about as we live in an uncertain world. I think there's two things that I think about a lot. One is, I mean, kind of the whole premise of the book and where the idea for the book came from was I had just kind of become disgruntled about our inability to predict the future. All of my background is in finance and the financial industry's ability to predict the next recession or the next bear market is non-existent. We've never been able to do it, but we keep pretending that we can. So, and a lot of that was because of course we can't predict the next recession because the next recession is going to be caused by something like 9-11 that nobody saw coming or COVID that nobody saw coming or Lehman Brothers couldn't find a buyer in 2008 that nobody saw coming. All these like completely random out of the blue events that were impossible to predict, at least the timing of them would be impossible to predict that changed everything. So that to me was like, okay, if we don't know what's going to change in the future, we cannot predict the change. What do we know for certain is going, to, is, is going to be part of our future? That's kind of where the idea for same as ever came from. It's like, what do we know is not going to change? So part of it to answer your question was, I, uh, whenever I see any forecast about who people think is going to win the next election, who people, what people think the economy is going to do next, or what the stock market is going to do next, I, I shake my head at those because nobody has any idea. And the reason they have no idea is because People, I think, are actually very good at predicting the future, except for the surprises. And the surprises are all that matter. Like nothing else matters but the surprises. So that's that's one that's one of the things is that I've just become very. Uh, I have I have virtually no confidence in anyone's ability to predict what the world is going to look like at some point in the future. I just think it's 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 nearly impossible to know. The other thing is, and this is kind of related to that, is I think I have a much greater margin of safety in my life, in my personal relationships, in my finances, for my friendships of just, I think people underestimate how fragile the world can be. And if you are, then you will put a lot more effort into your relationships that matter to you with your spouse or your children or your friends, knowing that like none of that is assured. And I'm not talking assured as in like they, they might pass away someday. I'm just like, if, if something is really valuable to you and it's really important to you and you don't want to let it go, you need to constantly maintain and invest in that relationship because things are fragile and things can break very quickly for reasons that you never saw coming. So that's, I, I think once you've experienced like the extreme tail end of risk, like losing your friends in an avalanche that you could have been part of like that, I think it attunes you much more to uh, what really matters in life are not the run of the mill risks that we think about, about what's the stock market going to do next? Or like, what's, what's the weather going to be next week? What really affects things are the one in a million risks that you had never even contemplated and never saw coming that you become more attuned to and you kind of manage your life with a greater degree of risk management. Hearing you tell the story, even though I knew it, I still get chills. And to your point, I think everyone's experienced loss. It's obviously very different when it could have been you. And I think about you know, you're sitting here today, you're obviously very successful, you're happy, you made it out on the other side, but someone else in a, in the similar situation may have had serious survivor's guilt, may have just really couldn't reconcile uh, that loss, could have gone a different direction, alcohol, drugs, so on, the list goes on. I'm curious, how, how did you come out the other side? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that there was a process that you went through. I wanna hear a little bit more about walking away from an event like that and what got you through it? First thing I would say is that I and, and Brendan Bryan, we were all 17 years old at the time. And so very young. We were, in hindsight, we were, we were kids. And I think if I had experienced that event as an adult, uh, I would have processed it very differently. The other thing that I think about for that event is I had, I had such a good childhood where almost nothing went wrong. Uh, Brendan Bryan dying was the first bad thing that had really ever happened to me. I don't think that's much of an exaggeration. My entire childhood was just rainbows and butterflies until that day, which meant that dealing with it, I think was just shock. Like in the grief process, the shock end of it for me, I think lasted longer than it would for other people because it was the first time I'd experienced really anything negative in my entire life. And so I also, I also remember dealing, I, I remember there was a, a long stretch of denial, very common in the, in the grieving process. I remember having these fantasies for lack of a better word. And I've learned later, this is actually very common that 
what if what if Brendan Bryan didn't die? What if they were out on some like secret CIA project and that was just like a ruse to cover? I remember having these like fan- and of course I didn't actually believe that, but it's I think it's very common to have those like fantasies in the denial process. So that that I remember. I also what sticks out is that as I've become an adult, I realize the extent of how young we were. And that's that that's been a hard thing when anyone anyone dies, it's very tragic. But, you know, my, my grandfather died several years ago uh, in his mid-90s. And it was sad, but it's, it's, it wasn't necessarily tragic, if that's the right word. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's not the right word to use. But when someone young dies, it's, a, it's, it's just an utter tragedy. So I, 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 what's interesting, too, is I, 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 I've thought about Brennan and Brian more as I get older than I did in, in the aftermath of their death. Because I think I just have the cognitive tools to process what it meant that I did not when I was 17. So that's made me wonder, you know, of course I've lost pe- friends and family since then. Um, and, and, and I process it in a very different way. One thing that's interesting that has stood out to me is that I did not go to Brendan Bryan's funeral, even though they were my t- two closest friends who I was with that day. And I think it was just too hard. I think I was, I was so wrapped into the denial about it I'm also was then am now kind of emotionally fragile. And I knew I would have just cried the entire time. And I didn't want to do that around my friends. But I think it was just, it was such a shock for me that it was, it was just kind of wandering, wandering through the desert, trying to figure out what happened for years after it happened. So you said you had, you had a very happy life until that moment. So I'm going to segue to, to happiness. And you had, a, you had an interesting uh, statement in the book, you write, quote, your happiness depends on your expectations more than anything else, end quote. Can you unpack that? Let's take wealth as a function of happiness. It's actually, it's obviously much, much broader than that, but let me just focus on that for a second. There's no such thing as an objective level of wealth because someone who ha- who made $10,000 a year, there's someone in the world making $10,000 a year who feels incredibly wealthy because it is such a boost to what they were making previously. And there are also people in the world who are making $10 million a year who feel broke. Uh, and, and, and it's all because what wealth is, is the gap between your circumstances and your expectations. And one, one way to really show this at a broad level is that the average typical American household today makes way more money, twice as much money than the average American household did in the 1950s, adjusted for inflation. But the average household today is actually less happy on average. The surveys that have showed this, we were happier in the 50s than we are today, despite making half as much money. And I think at least part of the answer to that is that in the 50s, people's expectations were lower, way lower. Part of it was because we had just gone through the Great Depression and World War II. And so people were just become accustomed to suffering and tragedy. And by the 1950s, when things started getting pretty good, relative to what they had just been through, it felt like Disneyland. And I think in, in relative terms, to, like, to paint a very broad brush here, for most Americans, not everybody, but for most Americans, the past 20 or 30 years have been pretty good. And because of that, their expectations have blown through the roof. So even if they are doing pretty well today financially, in terms of their income and their net worth, their definition of what it means to be wealthy and what it means to be well off is so different today from what it used to be in the past. I mean, you, you can take something like the average new house in the 1950s was 900 square feet. And people were stoked with that. People were super happy with a 900 square foot house. Whereas today, most Americans would not consider that an adequately sized house. Maybe some would, but most would not. Because our expectations of what a house is have inflated by probably 50% or so or more. And so... Social media, by the way, like dumps gasoline on that flame. It is so much easier today for your expectations to spin out of control. Because now when you open up Instagram, what most people see is a curated highlight reel of the prettiest, the wealthiest, the seemingly happiest people in the world. And if you scroll through that every day and you anchor your expectations to that, then even if your life is objectively pretty good, it's easy to fall into this kind of like spiral of despair. Where even if you're doing well, if your expectations are rising by even more, it's never going to feel great. And I think you can imagine a world in which my grandchildren are earning twice as much money as I am and as you are, adjusted for inflation, and they're no happier for it because their definition of success is going to be what our definition of extreme success would be. Like it's just going to inflate over time. So I guess the the the, the biggest point here to wrap this up is. 
what really matters for your happiness is not your circumstances. It's the gap between your circumstances and your expectations. And when you accept that, you put just as much emphasis on managing your expectations as you do improving your circumstances. And this is why if you go to like a cognitive behavioral therapist, the first thing they'll tell you to do and the most effective thing that you can do is a gratitude journal. Like at the end of every day, just being like, I'm so thankful for this and that and this and that. Because when you do that, you are, without even knowing it, you're managing your expectations and being grateful for what you already have rather than just dreaming about what you could have in the future. Well, it feels like it's our obsession with comparison. And, and maybe obsession is the wrong word to use, but we we pick up, you know, pick up the the phone and I look at Instagram as a comparison machine. It's an envy machine to some degree. How does one realistically balance? I love the idea of a gratitude journal, but how, how does one realistically take inventory of how, how they are stacking with regards to their expectations? What's realistic? What is unnecessary? How am I doing without you know becoming a monk and giving away all of our goods? I'll tell you one way that's like worked for me personally is, and it's kind of blunt advice, but I think it's, I think it's very powerful. It's the realization that nobody is thinking about you as much as you are. And nobody cares about your car and your house and your clothes and your jewelry as much as you do. And that's actually a very empowering realization because once you come to terms with it, then your willingness to or your, your, your desire to show off to other people diminishes. And therefore, it's easier to keep your expectations in check. I was, when I was in college, I read a lot about this in the psychology of money. I was a valet at a high-end hotel. And it dawned on me one day, and I was 19 or 20 years old, but it dawned on me that when somebody drove into the hotel in a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or Rolls Royce or something, never once did I look at the driver and say, whoa, that guy's cool. What I did is I imagined myself as the driver And I imagined myself as a driver when people would say, wow, Morgan is cool. And it was like, wait, do you see this irony of like, I don't care about the driver, but I want to be the driver because I think people will care about me. And that's the thing. Nobody's thinking about you as much as you are. And I think it's true for finance that the most powerful financial asset you can have is not needing to impress other people. If you can have that and actually like put that to use that is, that's the secret golden key to being wealthy is not needing to impress other people. And it's the core for not all of people's problems. There's like healthcare bills and stuff, of course, but the key to most people's financial problems is the desire to impress other people. And it's important too, that impressing other people does serve some role in society, particularly if you are young and you're looking for a spouse, you're looking for a boyfriend or a girlfriend, then of course your ability to show them that you dress well and you can take them out for whatever it would be has some like very meaningful role. But I think it's especially true as adults, particularly adults who have like settled down with their significant other, that your, uh, your willingness to show off is your greatest source of financial decline. It's, it's your biggest expense that you have. And so that to me has gone along, that acceptance has gone a long way towards not wanting to impress other people, particularly strangers. Look, I want to impress my wife and my kids and my parents. And like, that's pretty much it. Like those are the only people who I want to look at me and be like, wow, Morgan's great because those are the people who I want to love me. And for everybody else, like with all due respect, it's, 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 it's not that I don't care. It's just that it's not going to be the ultimate source of what's going to make me happy in life. So coming to terms with that for me has been very powerful. You had a great quote in the book, quote, money buys happiness in the same way drugs bring pleasure. Incredible if done right. Dangerous if used to mask a weakness and disastrous when no amount is enough. That's it. It's really, I think the obsession with money, if you look at it, really can be indistinguishable from the addiction to substances, whatever it might be. Like they really come from the same thing of the first time you you taste it or experience it, you're like, oh, this is great. But then when your expectations or you're like, your uh, tolerance for it increases. You need more and more just to feel okay. That's what drugs and alcohol do to your body. And I think that's what money can do to your mind. Some of the people who want more money more than anything else in the world are the wealthiest people. It's, it's not necessarily the poor people who are like, oh, if I, if like, who wake up saying, gosh, I want more money. I want more money. Of course that exists. But the people who wake up obsessed with making more money are the very richest people in the world because I think it has turned into like a clinical obsession for them. 
And for some of those people, that's why they're wealthy. It's because they're so obsessed with making more. They're going to devote 24 hours a day to making more money. But once you view it as a drug, nobody would view the addiction to alcohol or heroin as a positive attribute in your life. But once you once you link that to your obsession with money, you're like, oh, that, I, I don't want that. I, what I think what most people want intuitively is they want to make enough money so that they don't have to think about money anymore. They want money to be like oxygen, very important, but you don't think about it. You don't wake up thankful for oxygen. You just know it's there. That's what they want. But once you turn it into a, an obsession, then it's actually doing for you what you didn't want. You wanted to make enough money to not have to worry about money. But when it becomes an obsession, you can't think about anything else but money. That happens to so many people. And I, I think part of it lies in the fact that what gives you the most dopamine, what feels the best for most people is not necessarily having a lot of money. It's making money. It's the change, the increase that feels good. And so that's what they're chasing. They're chasing the dopamine of getting a raise. They're chasing the dopamine of dreaming what it would be like to have more money. But, even, but once they get the raise or once they have more money, it doesn't feel that great. So then they have to chase an even bigger raise. They have to chase even more money. And if you don't gain control over that cycle, like it will gain control over you very quickly. So how do you think about that relationship between happiness and money? You know, I, th there's been various studies throughout the years. Uh, one saying, you know, after 75,000, you know, there's not really much of a difference. And there have been others since then. What is your view on that relationship? How does one assess, you know, because there are people thinking, well, you know, if I just get that, you know, that magic number, then mm -hmm. I'm all good. We've, we've all done that, I think, to some degree. So how do you think about that connection? I think both the studies and most people are, are measuring or hoping for the wrong, the wrong word. They're all looking for or hoping for happiness. That's what they always try to measure, the relationship between money and happiness. Money is not going to make you happy. What money can do, if you do use it right, is make you content. Now, content is very different from happiness, but it's a pleasurable emotion. And I think what a lot of the studies would show is that people who have more money are more content. But content doesn't mean that you wake up smiling. It doesn't mean that you're always wandering around like laughing. That's what happiness is. Maybe a, like a good analogy here would be, if I tell you the funniest joke in the world, the, the first time you hear it, you're going to laugh. You might laugh for a minute. The second time you hear it, you might chuckle. The third time you hear it, you're like, all right, all right, I've heard enough. Because laughter and like happiness is a fleeting emotion. So you're never, even if you make a lot of money, like Bill Gates does not wake up with a smile on his face every day. And he, he probably hasn't in decades. It's just like, that's not what it brings. But if you were, if Bill Gates were on his deathbed today, would he look back at his career and be content with what he accomplished? Probably. It's brought him a lot of contentment. So, and look, contentment is a great, is, is something worth chasing. So it's not that don't chase money because it's not going to improve your life. It will improve your life. It's just not going to make you happy. One of the ways to think about this too is that I think wealthier people, because they're not happier per se, they don't have more good days, but they probably have fewer bad days than someone with less money. So it's not that you know they're, they're waking up with a smile on their face, but do they wake up in incredible stress and anxiety over medical bills or a job loss or looming recession to a much lower degree, obviously, than people who have less money? So that, again, is something worth chasing. Having fewer negative days in your life is something worth pursuing but don't expect that you're going to have more happy days. So, so that's where people become disillusioned with what money is going to do for their life. And you mentioned Bill Gates. And I've heard you talk about this in another show. If you think about some of the richest people in the world, Warren Buffett famously is not the best partner. Elon Musk, I think we all know, is a little bit tortured, not the, not the happiest person. Uh, and, and, and Jeff Bezos seems to be happy now, but just went through a very public divorce. And so there is a price to pay. I mean, one of the statistics that blows my mind is that among the top 10 richest men in the world, you know, the people who are worth $100 billion or more, among the top 10 richest men, there are 14 divorces among them. Uh, and so, and, and, and I'm pretty sure, I, I might be getting this wrong, but I think there's only two of the top 10 who have not been divorced, which is way higher than the general average. Now, you could say a, a sample size of 10 is not really something to go off of, but I, I do think it's true that the reason they're so successful is because they're utterly obsessed with their profession and utterly obsessed with making money. And that came at the expense of everything else. Warren Buffett, who's been and has been and is a hero of mine, and I've learned so much from, both about life and investing. If you read his biography, the, the best one is called The Snowball. It's kind of his, his, uh, his official biography. 
you realize that the reason he's been so obsessed with, or the reason he's been so successful at investing is because since he's been 11 years old, practically the only thought that's ever crossed his mind is picking stocks. That's, that's it. He wakes up thinking about it. He goes to bed thinking about it. And that has come at the expense of his family life and his personal life. And when you read the biography for someone who is so such a profound role model for me and who for so much of my life has said, like, that's who I want to be. But when you look at the, what, what achieving that success did to his personal life, and it's like, particularly now that I'm a parent, it's like never in a million years would I want that. It, it's very easy to count the success. It's quantifiable, his net worth, his income. Quantifying the cost is much more difficult. You really have to dig into the weeds about what it was like and what the cost of that success was. I love business biographies. And this might be uh, stating it too too black and white. Like this, this, this is probably stating it too harshly, but I, I, I'm not sure I've ever read a business biography of a very successful entrepreneur and finished the book and said, I want that person's life. And like every time I finish it, I'm like, God, that's amazing, but it sounds awful. It sounds awful. Now, I, I do think for those people, they couldn't have done anything else. It wasn't, it, it wasn't even a choice that they made. Like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos didn't make a choice to become entrepreneurs. They had to do it. It was just, I think tortured is the right word. They wake up every day and they're like, I have to solve this massive problem or else I can't do anything else. And so that it's, it's amazing to watch. I'm so thankful those people exist. But as someone who wants to live a happy life, I don't aspire to do it myself. Well said. So a lot of people want to live a happier life and, and many want to live a healthier life. And you've got a great chapter titled Incentives, the most powerful force in the world. We've got a health problem here in America. How can we use incentives to get people healthier? The best, the most well-meaning person can do something that is bad, however you'd want to define bad, do something that they should not do, whether it's illegal uh, or just unhealthy, if the incentives are right. And one, one example that I used in psychology of money or that I've thought about quite a bit is that it's very easy for people who are in good financial shape and have a supportive family life to look at someone who is obese or smokes cigarettes or does some sort of, you know, has some sort of unhealthy attribute and kind of say, shame on that person for eating too much. Shame on them for smoking cigarettes. Shame on them for drinking alcohol. Until you realize that a significant portion of people, particularly who are low income, if their life is so stressful because they're earning minimum wage, because they have to work two jobs, because they have to take three different buses to get to work and get their kids to childcare, whatever it might be. The only sense of pleasure that that person might face and they might experience during the day is eating a cheeseburger or smoking a cigarette. And if you and I were in that same situation, would I eat the cheeseburger? Would I smoke the cigarette? Would I drink the pint of vodka? Maybe. If you're, if you're in a system and the rest of your life is so miserable that that's the incentive is like, that's the only thing that's going to give you a little bit of rush of dopamine and pleasure that day. Maybe I would as well. And so it, it's, it's a, just kind of a call for empathy for the, the, the decisions that other people make. But it's also this idea of like, would I make that decision if I were in the same circumstances? You could also say this of like, it was so easy after the financial crisis of 2008 to say, shame on the greedy Wall Street bankers who are selling the subprime mortgages. And like, by the way, yes, like that, that, that is the right analysis. That's the right take. I think what's hard to say is, would I have done the same thing if I worked at Goldman Sachs in 2007 and someone said, hey, Morgan, if you sell these subprime bonds, we'll give you a $10 million bonus. Would I have done the same thing? Like, Maybe, probably. And so it's very easy to underestimate what you yourself would do if you were in the right incentives, if you had the right incentives around you. This can go both ways. It could be if you were incentivized for bad behavior, you would probably be able to justify it in your head. And it, But if you have the incentives for good behavior, like it's incredible what kind of results you can get out of any system. So whenever you have bad behavior in the world, or whenever you're trying to justify your own decisions, nine times out of 10, the answer for explaining that behavior is incentives. And that's what it is. It's very hard to put yourself in the shoes of the incentives that other people face. But I think most people, not everybody, but most people are inherently good. Most people want to do the right things for their selves, their own bodies, and for other people. And what throws us astray in bad health or geopolitics or the economy or the, you know global wars, whatever it would be, by and large, are bad incentives. Uh, and you see this everywhere. Jason Zweig, who's a great financial journalist, a good friend of mine, 
he has this quote that just knocked me down the first time I heard it because it was so powerful and I thought it was so true. He said, there are three ways to make a living as a writer. He said, number one, lie to people who want to be lied to and you'll get rich. Number two, tell the truth to those who want the truth and you'll make a living. Or number three, tell the truth to those who want to be lied to and you'll go broke. And that I was just like, yes, of course, that's exactly how it works. And therefore, in the media, you have very well-meaning, honest people who you would let watch your children, who say the craziest things in the media, because if you lie to people who want to be lied to, you'll get rich. That's what the incentive is to do. And of course, I've probably been guilty of this a few times, hopefully not from lying, but anyone who makes content online knows that there's a certain type of content and a certain way of phrasing something that's going to get people's attention. It's always the case. And so like, that's the incentive that I have and maybe you have and everyone else has online that would make us act in ways, not necessarily bad ways or unethical ways, but we act in ways that might be different than we would if we were just talking to our friend on the street because that's what the incentive is to do. It reminds me of the Wharton study that analyzed the most emailed list, the New York Times, and they classified the list. I've shared this on the show, so bear with me, but I think it's worth repeating. They analyzed the list by emotion to see if there were any commonalities. The top three emotions were anxiety, awe, and anger. Number one was anger. Anger increased virality by, I think it was 34%. It's the New York Times. There's a common quote in journalism. It's been around for decades. It's, if it bleeds, it leads. And that's, that's the truth. The huge majority of what goes on in, in the world every day is either boring or positive. But what the huge majority of what's in the news is exciting and scary. If the cover of the New York Times was very little happened yesterday, roughly 300 million Americans woke up, went to work and had a pretty good day. <laughs> That's not, you're never going to hear that. And it, it, it's kind of the same for history when you're studying history. My favorite historian is a guy named Frederick Lewis Allen who did most of his writing in the middle of the 20th century. And he really focused on America between 1900 and 1950. And what's so amazing about him is that Frederick Lewis Allen was obsessed with the life of the average ordinary American and what their day was like, just uh, like a plumber from Ohio. What was his life like in 1920? You never hear about that because all anybody hears about in history is World War II, FDR, World War I, the Great Depression, the big people and the big events is most of what you hear about if you're interested in history. But 99.9% .9 of history is very average and very mundane and very boring. And Frederick Lewis Allen is like the only person who took the history of ordinary people and made it really fascinating, just talking about what their life was like. So that's, that's really important too. Like it's, and it's, he stands out because it's so rare. Not, most of history and most of the daily news is about what 0.0.0.0001% of what's happening in the world. So I think part of the problem we have is is our desire for that dopamine hit. And I think many struggle with finding joy in the mundane, whether it's, you know, gardening, going for a walk, hugging our child, kissing our partner. So so how do you think about your daily life and some of those maybe quote unquote mundane tasks you don't even think about twice and how they, you know, bring you happiness? The first and honest answer is it's, it's ridiculously difficult. Humans are wired to seek dopamine. They're wired to seek what's next. They're wired to not be present in the moment. That's how we're wired. So it really takes a lot of like effort to push back on that. One quote that has stuck with me so much, particularly as a parent, I heard this quote a couple months ago, and it was, when you're dealing with your child who is screaming or misbehaving, or the moments of parenting when you're just like, I can't handle this anymore. Imagine that you are 90 years old and you have a time machine. And this moment that you're experiencing with your child is the only moment that you get to relive with them in your childhood. You would think about that screaming child much differently. Because if I was 90 years old and had a time machine and said, Morgan, you can go back to experience being a father to a young child, but the only moment you get to experience is your daughter screaming on the couch. I would love every second of it. I would enjoy every single second of it. So I think when you remind yourself something like that, and that's broader than parenting, you can imagine when you're just waiting in line at the rental car company and you're just like, gosh, this is so boring. I can't stand this. Imagine you're, you're 90 years old and you're on your deathbed. And again, somebody gives you a time machine and says, you can go back and you can experience this moment in your previous life. 
But the moment you get to experience is standing at the rental car line. You would probably, if you had that opportunity, you would be so grateful for your ability to stand and to see the sunshine and to talk to other people, which you might not be able to do if you're on your deathbed kind of thing. So I think that's just, it's just a different form of gratitude, I think, is just realizing. There's a friend of mine who has this quote that's another one of these, you know, knock you on your butt kind of quotes. He says, the purpose of life is to experience things that you will later experience nostalgia for. And that's that I think is really powerful. Like, what are you going to do today that 20 years from now you're going to have nostalgia for? And it's really interesting because when I look back at what I'm nostalgic for from my childhood, it's generally pretty mundane events. I mean, my, my quirky one, I think everyone has a little quirky, weird one. I used to go grocery shopping with my mom every single Saturday for my entire childhood. And I loved it. It was just her and I, and we'd like get a soda on along, along the way and we'd have a good conversation in the car. I loved grocery shopping with my mom. No, actually like at the time when I was eight years old, I, I don't know if I actually loved it, but I'm nostalgic for it today. And I've, I had this weird thing that like, if I could have the time machine and relive a moment from my childhood, this sounds so dumb, but I think it would be grocery shopping with my mom. So that mundane task I have nostalgia for. So what's the mundane task today that I'm going to be nostalgic for in the future? I have young kids, so I bet it's going to be driving my kids to school which today is a burden. It's just like, I got I to gotta stop my work, get in the car, there's traffic, blah, blah, blah. I know in 20 years, I'm going to look back at that and be like, oh, I wish I could do that one more time. And so that reminder of what you are likely to experience nostalgia for, I think makes you appreciate what you're doing in the moment a little bit more. How old are your kids? Uh, four and seven. Wow, we're in the same. We we've got four and almost seven. And uh, I hear you. Our, our, you know, It's something we think a lot about as our six-year-old is about to be seven, looks like she's 10. And so even though she's so young, we look at her and we just we, we just are in awe that, oh, wow, she's not the little, you know, she still wants to every once in a while, like, you know, pick pick her up and she's like 65 pounds. So I have to like really, <laughs> I, I feel, if you, you feel it slipping away and you really start to think about time and, and, those little experiences, whether it's pick up or drop off or, you know, taking the trash out together, that mundane. Going grocery shopping for me, it's the little things. Yeah. And, and there are these seasons of life. Uh, you know, this is the season to do those tasks because once it ends, it, it ends. You go on to the next season. Uh, and it really hits home with little kids. It really does. Particularly, I, I heard this other thing recently that I like that kids spell love. T-I-M-E. That's what kids want, like what kids' definition of love from your parent is just spending time together. And I think a parent's idea of love is we need to do something special. We need to go on vacation. We need to go to a museum. Kids' definition of love is just like, can we sit on the floor and play Legos? Can we tell stories to each other? Like that's all, that's all they want. And so I think, A, that's also what you're going to be nostalgia for is sitting on the floor playing Legos or telling stories. But so much of a parent's drive, particularly because what an adult generally needs to find pleasure is like, we need to go to Hawaii. We need to go to Vegas. We need to do something big. But kids are just like, can we just play with a stick outside? That's, that's fun to them. So I think when you realize that that's what they want and what they love, then it makes it more palatable for you to want to do that with them. So I want to bring it back to this idea of balancing optimism and pessimism in a productive way. And you tell one of my favorite stories, the Stockdale paradox and how it comes into play here. Can you share the Stockdale paradox with the audience? Stockdale was uh, an admiral who was a POW in the Vietnam War. And uh, he, he has so many interesting stories about what it was like to be a, a POW. He was the highest ranking POW in Vietnam. And he told the story one time that the people who did the worst as POWs, who just kind of didn't make it mentally or physically, were the optimists. And the reason was, is because the optimists would say, we're going to be released by Christmas. I'm optimistic. The war's going to be over by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and go and they would be utterly crushed. They would just be morally crushed because their dream didn't come true. And Stockdale said, the people who did the best of which he was one of are people who were able to balance optimism and pessimism, or maybe you could say optimism and realism at once. So it was the people who said, we're going to get out of this eventually. The war is eventually going to end. We are going to go home, but we're not going home by Christmas. 
This is going to be a long war. We're not going home by Christmas. Those are the people who actually did the best. The book is actually dedicated. My, my book, same as ever, is dedicated to the reasonable optimists, which is a phrase, I, I don't know if I coined it, but it's a phrase that I, I, I think I came up with, which is like someone who is optimistic. If your definition of optimism is everything's going to be good in the future, uh, that's not optimism. That's complacency because so to speak, we're not going home by Christmas metaphorically. Uh, you know, things are good. Things are going to be tough in the future for everybody. There's going to be challenges and hill, hills to climb for everybody. But reasonable optimism, as I defined it, is things are going to be pretty good in the long future, but the path between now and then is going to be a constant chain of obstacles. I think that's reasonable optimism. It's balancing optimism and pessimism at the same time. And those are the people who tend to do well. I also read this thing very recently that a lot of the uh, the uh, POWs in World War II and some of the Holocaust survivors in World War II, the people who had the highest survival rates are the people who had families waiting for them or they thought waiting for them back at home because they had something to live for. And the people who did the worst were the people who didn't have any families waiting for them back at home. There are people who are able to give up the most. And so I think the balancing optimism and pessimism of like the pessimism of we're in this terrible situation and the optimism of I have something to live for. I have somebody to live for. I'm optimistic this is actually going to end and I'm going to see my wife. I'm going to see my husband and my kids again. That you, you need both of those to coexist at the same time and able to do well overnight, uh, to, to do well over time. I think optimism and pessimism is usually viewed as binary. Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? And if you don't get both of them to coexist with each other, you're going to do poorly. I give the example of the book of Bill Gates, who had this amazing management style when he was when Microsoft was a startup, which was that Bill Gates took the biggest risk that maybe any entrepreneur has ever taken. Of he thought that in the 1970s, every house in America should have a computer, which back in the 70s was like this bonkers idea. Nobody thought it could happen. So at the same time that he has like crazy optimistic, he managed Microsoft so that he always had at least 12 months of cash in the bank so that he could make revenue for, or he could make payroll for one year without any revenue, which is the most conservative, pessimistic way to run a company. So he balanced optimism and pessimism with each other. And that's why Microsoft has been so successful. It's not one or the other. Pure optimism will send you over, send you over a cliff. And pure pessimism means like you'll never get going. You have to have both of them at the same time. So I'm curious, since writing this book, what, what have you changed in your personal life? What, what are some of the significant learnings or, or key changes you've made? I don't know if it's since writing the book, because I think everything I write about is kind of like a closet journal for myself. It's things that I've learned about, like every chapter in this book, I think is something that I learned about myself. And that's where the chapter came from. It's, it's, it's kind of like my diary here. But I've definitely, like, what have I changed over the 15 years that I've been writing? I think, as, as I said earlier, I'm much more skeptical of forecasts. I'm much more for humility and room for error. I'm much more for the idea that money can bring happiness in the sense that it gives you control over your time. And if you can use it to control your time, that's a major life improvement. Not necessarily to buy nicer stuff or a bigger house, but for freedom and independence. That's, that's been pretty big for me. Both of those things, the humility and the freedom of your time, are things that I did not believe 15 years ago. Granted, I was young and dumb, but I think 15 years ago, I would have said, if you're smart, you can predict the future, and the key to happiness is a mansion and a Ferrari. <laughs> I think that's, that's effectively what I believed. And look, lots of adults as they age realize that both of those things are, are, are not true, but I've spent 15 years kind of drilling into the finer details of them, and it's those become like it's great to have a career that's not just interesting to me, but I can apply both of those to my own life and my own kind of philosophies of how I live my life. So there's lots to be concerned about in the world right now, which we're not going to go into details there. And uh, well, let's take the the flip side. What what's the the practical, realistic, optimistic approach to where we sit today? What what are you excited about? Well, I think if you look today, of course, you and I could name. We're not going to, but we can name a dozen major risks and threats right now. But we could have done that 10 years ago. We could have done that 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. So it's not to say that the threats don't exist. Of course they exist and they're very real. They're very dangerous. There's never been a time when that's not the case. So that in itself is optimistic. They're like, yes, it's bad, but it's always bad. And people figure out the solutions to it and you move on. The asterisk to that of like people figure out solutions and move on is if you are a 
survivor, survivor financially or survivor like literally. So to me, like the, the case for optimism economically, let's say, is that if you are an economic survivor, meaning you don't you don't get wiped out in the stock market, you don't give up on stocks, you don't like like you can maintain and discipline and like stay standing for the next 20 or 30 or 50 years. The long history of humans figuring problems out and finding solutions and ending up not just okay, but way better off than they were before is extraordinary. And more than that, there's a chapter in Same as Ever called When the Magic Happens that basically says, it details the long history of the biggest innovations, the biggest technological improvements, the biggest like move forwards in the world happen and come specifically from the biggest tragedies. The most technologically progressive event that's ever happened in human history was World War II. The number of new technologies that benefit my and your life today that came because of World War II are off the charts. Satellites, internet, uh, penicillin, jet engines, atomic energy, microwaves, the list of what, of what we discovered because of the war is off the charts. That would not happen if it were not for the war. And so I think that's the case for optimism today, despite the problems that we have. A, it's we've always had problems. And B, it's the problems that we face today is exactly the fuel that we need to figure out solutions to those problems that's going to leave us much better off at some point in the future. So in closing, is, is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to touch on or perhaps some parting words of wisdom? No, I think I think to that point of what we just said, I, I, I think if I, as someone who is just an amateur who studies history, I would say I'm more optimistic today than I would have been not just in my life, but probably at any other point during my life. It's always so easy in hindsight to say, oh, the people you know at the end of World War II could look forward and the future was so bright in America. Yeah, but they didn't know it back then. We know that today, but they didn't know it back then. And so I think it's always been the case that it's easy to look at the future and shake your head with a sense of anxiety and dread. But if you look at what we have going for us today, pretty good demographics in America, a lot of new technologies that are just right on the cusp. I think there's actually a lot to be pretty grateful for. And I think the way to really sum that up, to put a pin in this, is that I think most people, if given a time machine and, and, and told, you can pick any other era in human history to live, most people would look at the time machine and say, I want to live in the year 2023. That's when things have been the best throughout any of our periods. And I think just accepting that is like a pretty, is something to be grateful for. Amen. Morgan, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.